As some of you may know, just over a week ago, my wife and I went down to Covenant College, where I celebrated my 50th homecoming, graduating in 1969. That was before many of you were born, much less even thought of, I guess. It's a long time ago. And Saturday, at lunchtime, I was sitting with several people I knew, actually people from my youth group when I was in high school in Huntsville, Alabama, Steve, Mary Lou, myself, and we were talking about the fact that we were half of our high school youth group right there. And as we were talking about what drew us to that group, several things became apparent. One, all of us were looking for something of some significance in life. Now, most of my friends were people who were not believers, did not trust Christ. And in Huntsville, there was one major highway through town, US 231, north and south, a route down to Florida. And at one end was the Shoney's restaurant, drive-in restaurant. The other end of town was a Jerry's drive-in restaurant. On Friday, Saturday night, the thing to do was to go to one of those places and you'd see your friend and you'd talk. And then word would come that something was happening at the other drive-in, no matter who knows what it was. So everybody would start their cars, peel out, drive down to the other place, drive around, find a parking place. Nothing was ever going on, but that was always the rumor. We'd be there for a while and then go back to the other place and back and forth and back and forth. And I just did not like that. I said, there's got to be more than that. And as I got involved in the church youth group, it was a group that actually did things. My pastor was someone who liked uh, going caving, and he would take us in the different caves in North Alabama, and there's a lot of caves there. And you'd come out muddy and dirty and waking in the bright sunlight after spending several hours in the cave. That was just was great fun. I enjoyed that. One of the elders in the church was named, a man by the name of Fred Peace. P-E-A-C-E, Peace. And he invited us to come to his house whenever we wanted to, like Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday night. And we did that. We called it the House of Peace. Sound cool at the time. And we'd have pizza or ice cream or whatever it was. And he had the, like a pool table, ping pong table, things like that. We would play games and he would often lead us in a Bible study. My youth group leader was, a, I guess, an intern at the church, a man by the name of Jim Cox, who was um, a very interesting fellow, had uh, spent time in Switzerland working for Francis Schaeffer at Labrie. And so a lot of our actual youth group meetings were listening to Francis Schaeffer tapes on the old reel-to-reel tapes, uh, had a wand sack tape recorder and put those on. And For the most part, didn't know what in the world he was talking about, but later I kind of figured some things out. But we were a good group. We enjoyed doing things together. We had content in our meetings, and we had some people who cared for us. 
And that, in a large part, I think, is why I am where I am today. I found some significance in the things that I was doing there in the church and in that youth group. And the other two students said the same thing. They were very appreciative of those individuals who opened their homes to us and taught us and took us places and and all those things. We want, at least most people want, something which is real and not fake. Now, I have heard people say, well, I don't really want a diamond. I want a cubic zirconium, you know. I don't know that I believe that, but I have heard people say that. So how do you know if something is real? Like I'm, I'm wearing a gold ring. That's actually 1969 also. Well, there are tests. There's a, there's a test to see if, if gold is real gold or if it's something which is not real gold. You know what some of the tests are? Anybody? Anybody with a science background? Well, maybe not. One is that there usually be some kind of a hallmark on a real piece of gold. If you have a necklace, it might be on the clasp, it's on the ring, it'll be on the inside. Mine has some mark, I can't read anymore, but it also says 14 karat. Just real gold. That's one way. A little bit more, perhaps, scientific way is what we call the acid test. I don't recommend you try this because it can be dangerous, but you can take nitric acid, just get your hands on some of that, wear rubber gloves, goggles, scratch a little place on whatever it is you're trying to test, and you put a drop of nitric acid on the metal. If it's gold, nothing will happen. If it's not gold, it's going to get eaten away. So if you have gold-plated something or other or whatever, um, it'll, it'll destroy it. And there's some other tests you can do as well, but uh, we'll just leave it at that. So somebody says, hey, you know, I just got engaged and my boyfriend bought me this ring at uh, you know, Dollar General. You, you probably have a good idea. It's, it's probably not the best thing, right? But a lot of people say similar things about the church and about Christ and about Christianity. And so we want to make sure that we are involved in what is real and not something which is false or fake. I lose track of time, but it seems like it was about 10, no, maybe 15 years ago, there was a major, large church in Chicago that had been a model for church plants all over the country. They did a study to find out how effective they were in making disciples for Christ. And much to their surprise, they found out that all that they were doing, the real showy worship services and this and that and the other, was not producing disciples. And they came to the conclusion that they needed to change what they were doing. At least they were honest to admit that. And said, we we think what we need to do is to really concentrate on having people study the Bible and pray to do good deeds, as the Lord has called us to do, and to um, just practice those godly disciplines. You say, well, boy, you know, 
That'd be a rocket scientist to figure that out, do you? No, but they didn't until they did the survey and realized that what they were doing wasn't, wasn't effective. Now, I haven't read our text yet, so I'm going to do that now. And there are two metaphors that Jesus uses, and they are both very, very similar in what they convey, but he does use two. Some have criticized this passage of Scripture because they say that Jesus used mixed metaphors. I don't think they were mixed. I think they were just different. Just a reminder that the Gospel of John does not have parables. It has allegories, and this is one of those. So we, we need to be careful that we don't look at every single thing here and try to find some spiritual meaning to see what's the major thrust of what Jesus is saying, and we'll go from there. Let me start with John chapter 10, verse 1, and I'll read down through verse 18. Jesus is speaking. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way. That man is the thief and a robber. But when he enters by the door, uh, but when he enters by the door, but he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep, to him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He, was, he who was a hired hand and uh, not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches away, snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, that they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I receive from my Father." So what I want to say this morning, by way of the idea of my sermon, is that Jesus is the way to the Father, and the one who guards and takes care of his people. Drawing from both of those figures of speech, I am the door and I am the good shepherd. So if you're taking notes, the next thing we talk about is the context of this passage. The context. You always want to know what the context is for any passage. Now, we won't look at everything there is, but if we were to go back to John chapter 5, we know that there was a man who was healed at the pool of Bethesda, 
And Jesus says, you know, rise, take up your mat, and go home. So it was a Sabbath day, and he did what Jesus said. So he's walking home, carrying his mat. And the Jews said to him, hey, what are you doing? We're carrying your mat. That's work. You're not allowed to work on the Sabbath. Why are you doing that? He said, well, the one who healed me told me to do that. And obviously, if someone was telling someone else to work on the Sabbath, they couldn't be of God, right? In John chapter 8, Jesus says that he was the light of the world. The Pharisees said to him, bearing witness about yourself, but your testimony is not true. They were calling Jesus a liar. He was not the Son of God. He was not the Savior. He was not the Messiah. He was just someone who was out after his own glory, and they wanted nothing to do with him. Then in chapter 9, right before chapter 10, is a very interesting passage where we have the account of a man who was born blind, whose sight was restored. And oddly enough, this was also on the Sabbath day. And here Jesus made some mud, put on his eyes and all of that. And his eyes were opened and he saw. Then the Pharisees came to him later and said, who, who healed you? What are you doing? You know, why would somebody do this on the Sabbath? And it says, if we look at um, verse 22 of chapter 9, the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So the man's parents said, well, you know, we don't know what's going on. You know, you're going to have to ask the guy. He's old enough. He's his own person. And so they ask him, and he sort of mocks them. He said, wait, this is really something. Here's somebody healed the blind, and you have no idea who he is or how he did it. And they said, basically, you know, don't get smart with us. You're going to find yourself tossed out of the synagogue as well. So then it appears as though Jesus is talking to those same people who had encountered the blind man, the one whose sight was restored, because there doesn't seem to be any break in time at this point. You will notice over in verse 22, it says, at that time, at the Feast of Dedication, took place at Jerusalem. There, there is a break in time. What follows in John 10 happened later. But right now, it seems that this passage about the door and the shepherd happened right on the heels of the man born blind, and Jesus is addressing them. So the next point, well, let me say one more thing. We might say, why was it that somebody who saw these miracles taking place, would not believe that Jesus was really the Messiah. But they didn't. They were so blind, they were not open to the possibility that they were wrong, and so they would not listen to what anyone said or what Jesus said. It's even interesting in chapter 11, where Lazarus is raised into chapter 12, everybody's enamored with Christ, and so what do the chief priests and the Pharisees say? Well, let's kill Lazarus, and then, you know, people stop following Jesus. It didn't occur to him that, well, maybe he'll raise Lazarus a second time, but they were blind to the reality that was before them. There was one time a few years ago, the church I was serving, we would, every Christmas we would have a, a, I don't know what you'd call it, but it was a gathering at Homestead Meadows Farm in Appleton, west of the Appleton Airport on Spencer Street. And there was an old dairy farm. They had 
the barns clean, decorated, and everything. It was a really nice place. And one year, someone invited a friend of hers to come, a family that had just moved to the Alpine area. She introduced me, and the lady said, yeah, we just moved here. I'm hoping to get a job teaching school. Now, it just so happened that one of our elders actually worked for the school district. And he was over on the serving line. He was helping, you know, dish out food to people who were coming through. And I said, I have just the person for you to meet because he works for the school district. He said, no, it's, I'm not going to bother with that. I was told that they're not hiring. The school district's not hiring. So I go over and talk to Mark. I say, hey, Mark, you know, this lady over here says uh, she'd like to have a job teaching, but she says, you know, Appleton's not hiring. He said, well, I'm the one who does the hiring, actually. And we're always looking for good teachers. We're always looking for good people. Just send her over. I can't leave right now. I'm right in the middle of something. So I go back to her and say, okay, Mark, you see the guy over there? Word him out. He works for the school district. He's in charge of hiring teachers. Just go over and introduce yourself. You know, maybe he won't hire you, but what do you have to lose? It was just, no, I'm not going to bother with that. He, they're not hiring, so why bother going through that? And this went on for several times. I finally said, okay, that's right. I'll wash my hands of the situation. If you won't even go talk to the man, um, I don't know. I, 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 don't, I don't know how somebody could be that blind to what they had right in front of them, but they did. So anyway, the same were those the Jews who were around Jesus. Second point. Jesus, the door of the sheep. Now, I don't have time to go into all the things that he says here, but there are several things I do want to, to point out to you. One, he talks about a sheep fold. Now, we don't have things quite like this in this country, at least not in this area that I'm aware of. But this would be an enclosure, probably a stone wall, maybe with briars on top of it to make it hard for somebody to climb over. And different shepherds would bring their flocks and put them in there at night. And then someone would stand guard through the night so that somebody didn't climb over the wall or an animal didn't come in and try to take some of the sheep. And Jesus said, there are thieves and robbers. They want to steal, kill, and destroy the sheep. But they're safe as they are guarded by the door of the sheepfold because they can't climb over and they can't go through the door. Now, when Jesus says this, he talks about all who come before me are, you know, thieves and robbers and killers and so forth. He might have been talking about some of the false shepherds of Israel that we read about in Ezekiel 34. I'm not going to take time to read that passage, but it's very graphic about how the shepherds of Israel were just feeding themselves and letting their flock go hungry. And they are just castigated for their lack of concern for the people of Israel and the shepherds, the sheep. But we look at the passage and we find that what Jesus says is, not all who came before me were thieves and robbers. But he says in verse number 8, all who came before me are thieves and robbers. He speaks in the present tense. So 
you guys right here, the ones who've been chasing people off from the synagogue, one who have been upset because miracles have been performed, people have been helped, you are the thieves and the robbers. You only care about yourself. And the Father will deal with you in the proper time. You might say, well, that was like 2,000 years ago. Are there thieves and robbers, false shepherds who are around today? I would say yes. My wife and I moved to Appleton in 1991, almost 30 years ago. Long time ago, still older than some of you alive. Okay. There was one major church in Appleton. It was a domination that I would not attend. And I was there to start a church, so I didn't attend anyway. But I met the pastor, and he said, you know, when we first got started, we were really caught up in a lot of the charismatic stuff. But as time went on, we kind of realized we needed more than that. So the emphasis shifted from charismatic stuff to Bible study and to prayer. And they did have Bible studies all over town. I think there were about 1,200 people who were part of that congregation. But he left, he retired, and someone else came along, had an entirely different mindset. This other person was caught up in what was called at the time the Brownville Revival. I won't go into what that is. But they had healing services, miracle services, every Friday night. It was in the newspaper. They have advertisements. Miracle service. Come, be healed. Bring the sick and the lame and so forth. And this folks of the church shifted away from Bible study and prayer to the supernatural. The church began to dwindle in numbers. A couple other churches were started out of people who left. And then one of the last contacts I had with anybody at the church was a few years ago. They were down to about 50 people. They were going to sell their property and they were trying to restart over I think in Little Shooter, the Connor, someplace like that. There was someone there who was, in my opinion, in the opinion of others, a false shepherd. Not really concerned about the sheep, but concerned about himself. Going back even beyond that, there was a very gruesome thing that happened, and it still shocks people when they learn about it. But there was a man by the name of Jim Jones, James Warren Jones. He was a pastor, a member of a fairly well-known denomination who kind of went off the rails, became a cult, a cult leader, and then took about a 1,000 people with him down to South America, to Guyana, Jonestown. There were people who imported their congressman, one congressman, Leo Ryan, to go down there and see if he could find out what was going on and bring, I think, their children back from their children. He did. In 1978, when he was taking a couple of the cult members home, people in the compound opened fire, killed him, a U.S. congressman, and some other people. Then on the heels of that, 918 people committed suicide by drinking, it wasn't Kool-Aid, but it was something called Flavor-Aid, laced with cyanide. So you've heard the expression, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Well, that's where that comes from. 
But it's a misnomer. It really wasn't Kool-Aid as such. It was just a flavored drink. 304 of those were children. It's hard to even comprehend something like that. Was he a false shepherd? Absolutely. Absolutely. So people like this are still around. But we're told that the sheep hear the shepherd's voice and they follow him. Sheep will only follow the voice of their shepherd. So if you have a bunch of flocks in a sheepfold, the morning comes, different shepherds come, they call their sheep, only the sheep that belong to that shepherd will come out. That's kind of sheep are just kind of funny that way. But Jesus said that his sheep hear his voice and he gives them life, true life, life in abundance. That'd be easy to say what that means is that we're never going to be sick again, we're never going to be poor again, we're never going to do whatever. But that's not real life. Some of you probably don't remember the Johnny Carson show, but I used to watch that when I was younger, when it's still on. And I don't know how many times I heard Carson talk to other celebrities who would come in who were also very wealthy. He would make the comment, having wealth does not make you happy. It just means you don't have to worry about bills. But it doesn't make you happy. But we live in a, a culture that is enamored with things which are false. False truths, I guess. But Jesus gives us life in abundance. And I think part of that is a life which has a purpose of glorifying God the Father and God the Son through the Holy Spirit. A life that's involved in worship. Life that's involved in service to others. We could go on and name those things which you know are good Christian graces that we should be involved in. That's what true life is. Remember the Apostle Paul says, I've, I've been without and I've had plenty. I know how to be content in any and every situation. We do well to learn that ourselves. Jesus protects his sheep. And I'm going to say more about that in just a moment. So the third point is, we talk about the context, about Jesus, the door of the sheep. Now we talk about Jesus, the good shepherd. Now that term and that adjective good is so part of our speech as uh, people who know the Bible that we sometimes forget that that word which is translated good can also be translated excellent. He is like the best shepherd there is. The excellent shepherd. He says that he lays down his life for his sheep. His life is a sacrifice. Not just dying on the cross, but everything involved in the incarnation leading up to the cross was a sacrifice for his people. He willingly, according to God's will, lays down his life and he also has the ability to take it up again. You may say, wait a minute, am I, am I saying that Jesus raised himself from the dead? Yeah. Didn't he say in John 2, destroy this temple, three days I'll raise it up again? So what we find is that there are passages that speak of God the Father raising Jesus from the dead. 
the Holy Spirit raising Jesus from the dead, and Jesus also raising himself from the dead. You think about it, well, it makes sense. There's only one God, again, three persons, but they were all involved in the resurrection. He says, someone who is just hired to watch a sheep will run away when danger comes. Like David, you know, fighting the bear and the lion, trying to protect his sheep. So he thought he could take Goliath with God's help. We live in an area where there are not too many lions running around. And unless you go up north, there really aren't any bears that I've seen in this area. We were at the Smoky Mountains right after that homecoming. There, not quite a week. And there were more warning signs about bears than you could shake a stick at. Now, we happened to have some bear spray that we had when we were out west last year, so we would carry that with us in case we encountered a bear. The only bears we actually saw were cubs that would run across the road or be playing in the woods. But the day before we left, my wife and I went on this nature hike. It was supposed to be an easy hike, but it was like you know, you're climbing up this side of this mountain, and it was more than just an easy hike. But it was very interesting, a lot of trees and everything like that, a lot of thick underbrush. And a lot of times we would hear something in the, in the leaves. Is something following us? It sure sounds like it. And then when we were almost all the way around this nature trail, getting, getting off of it and going back onto the road, some lady was saying, hey, people, get out of there. There's a bear up there. I said, what? I said, yeah, we, I was up there, and this bear came down the trail after me. She was scared. She had gotten this big stick, I guess, to protect herself. I said, get out of there now. I said, we don't see a bear. She said, it's there. <laughs> Trust me. So we trusted her. We, we didn't keep going. We, we left like we were planning to do. But bears are dangerous. They're not like a big fluffy dog. They're, they're, they can be vicious. And Jesus says, you know, he protects us from all of these lions and bears that are out there and keeps us safe. Jesus says that he knows his sheep and they know him. One of my favorite passages is from Isaiah chapter 43, verse 1, where we read, Fear not. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Jesus calls his sheep by name. He knows us. Another place tells us that our names are engraved on the hand of God. He'll never forget us. A number of years ago, I was watching a concert on television, and I noticed that the lead singer had written on his hand the order of the songs they were going to sing. Like he'd taken a marker and written them there. So after finishing one song, he'd kind of look at and knew what was coming next. Now, he could go back to his trailer when the concert was over and take some soap and get all that washed off, right? Yeah. So we're not written just with a, a marker, but our name is engraved on the hand of God. We are there. He knows us. He can never forget us. And nothing can take away that name. He knows us. 
He feeds us. He tells us He is the bread of life. He feeds us spiritually. Jesus goes on to tell us that there's one, one flock and one shepherd. That there are other sheep that he's going to call to himself. And we believe he's talking about Gentiles. So the Jews and Gentiles together will make up one flock of God. So this brings us to the conclusion. So we have to ask ourselves, what will we do with Jesus? Do we just think this is a nice story? That we can read about the good shepherd, Jesus being the door? Or do we understand that there is something real in the content of what we are told here? And this brings us back to something you've heard me say before. And that it's not enough just to know what the Bible says. We do have to know what the Bible says. We have to know what the Bible says about us as people, that we are sinful. That we are separate from God. We are lost. And that the only hope we have is God's grace who gives to us the salvation that was secured by Christ. Remember, James tells us, you know, even the demons believe in God. You know, if you do that, big deal. We have to know that there is a God. We do have to believe that. And we have to believe the content of Scripture. We may not understand everything, but we have to believe that this is true. But not only that, we also have to accept this and put our trust in what the Bible says. And our trust is actually in a person. It's in Christ and what he has done. We believe it's true, the Bible, and we trust in the one of whom it speaks. And then what do we do? Then we make it our business to grow in our understanding of the Christian faith. So we, we do read our Bible. As cliche as that may sound, that's the one thing we have to do in order to continue growing spiritually. So, you know, I'm involved in Lamp Seminary. And there are those who uh, tell me that I probably should just go ahead and kind of retire and give this over to somebody else. But one of the reasons I really enjoy working with Lamp and working with these students as I facilitate discussions and so forth, is that I learn things. From the lectures that they listen to, the things they read, I'm still learning. And hopefully till the day that I die, I'm going to still learn more and more and more about the Scriptures. It, it just fascinates me when I come across a passage that I've known for years, and I've read who knows how many times, but I learn something new about the passage, and I say, how could I have missed that? It was there all the time, but I didn't see it. But I see it now. That's something which, to me, is exciting. Prayer. Prayer is probably the most difficult of all, all Christian endeavors. We need to learn how to pray. Perhaps you're like me. You, you, know, you sit down to pray. You look at your watch. Okay, well, it's, you know, 
it's uh, 6.30 in the morning. I'm going to pray for 15 or 20 minutes, and then I'll you know, finish getting ready, have breakfast, go to work, and so forth. You close your eyes, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray, and you pray. You look at your watch, and you know, 45 seconds have passed. What's going on? You know? You know, and you pray a few minutes more, and you prayed maybe three or four minutes. Well, because it's hard. And we can think things much faster in our mind than we can say them with our, with our mouth. But we need to learn how to pray. And study the, the prayers of Paul, the apostle, for instance. It's really interesting that he doesn't ask for temporal things in his prayers. He asks for spiritual things to take place in the lives of the people of God. We need to do that. We need to worship, which we're doing this morning. Worship individually, but also corporately. And we do need to do those good works that God has called us to. We're to be involved in the life of the church and, and doing what we can to see the kingdom of God built up. These are the things that Jesus has called us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come this morning, we know that you are the one who has given us the scriptures. You've told us what we need to know. You're the one who has sent Jesus Christ, our Savior. And we are in your debt. We are so thankful for what you've done. Help us, Father, as people who know the Bible, not to ignore it. But not to say that we believe it and then fail to read it and study it. Help us, Father, to realize what Jesus has done for us as he has explained that he is the door and he is also the shepherd. Help us, Father, to be Christians, not in name only, but also in all of our thoughts, words, and deeds. In Christ's name, amen.